in the world. And underneath them are very significant worldview changes that have been behind them. Uh, against the, the rise of secular humanism in Western democracies, uh, where we have, in a sense, said we really don't want God to be part of the picture. We want the public square free of God. Uh, we will be the arbiter of our own uh, truth and reality against that rise of secular humanism and that growth of materialism. There's been a kind of a backlash of militant Islam. And so it is small, struggling Christian churches that are feeling the increasing persecution and suffering and opposition as these sort of Arab Spring countries throw off dictators and replace them with very militant Islamic governments and regimes. And we're in a time of huge change in the Middle East. And the direction that these countries are going are into a hardened Islamic way that's just going to make it harder and harder for, for Christian churches. And it would seem as if this is a reaction against this threat of, 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 the, of the West secular humanism. Now for us in Britain, we also face the challenge of, of secular humanism. We're living in a country where uh, it seems increasingly the political establishment wants to legislate to control the way we think. And so sexual rights are trumping uh, religious rights. And the great issue today is whether we're going to be allowed freedom of conscience or not. So for example, if um, the Scottish government decides that it wants to redefine marriage... Will Christian teachers be free not to teach about so-called homosexual marriage? Will parents be able to object and remove their children uh, from classes that teach such things? And the issue today is can Christians share the hope that we have in Christ in this marketplace of ideas? Or will this tolerant society be intolerant? of biblical Christianity. It seems as if it's increasingly becoming intolerant, doesn't it, of biblical Christianity. It's been quite chilling to see how the General Medical Council treated a doctor with many, many years' experience of, of good care of patients. Uh, they, he, he had a, a, a man come to see him. He offered him proper medical advice. He saw the man was so discouraged. He then said, um, can I share with you some of... Uh, the hope that I have in my Christian faith, the man agreed, so he shared. And then there was a later complaint, and in a closed session of the GMC, this doctor was told if he'd ever behaved in that way again, and there was a further complaint, he would be struck off from the GMC. It's a chilling environment, isn't it? When even with permission being sought and given, you get treated in this way. So as evangelical Christians and as churches, we can feel so small and insignificant against these huge social uh, pressures, these political changes that seem so intangibly out there, that, that seem to kind of press in on us and range against us. And the question is, uh, what are we looking to? Who are we looking to in this time of upheaval? Well, I guess we all know the right answer. We're supposed to be looking to God. Uh, we're supposed to be reminding ourselves of who's on the throne. But the sad truth is that we can so quickly lose our focus on the majesty of God. 
we can so easily become short-sighted to the glory of Christ. And so we fail to live properly in the times that we're in. It was true, uh, uh, it's true today, and it's true of the time of Isaiah. And I want you to open your Bibles to page 705 in the church Bibles, Isaiah chapter 22. If you're visiting today, we're just working through this book of Isaiah at the moment, and we've come to this particular chapter. Isaiah chapter 22, page 705. Now this is a prophecy about Jerusalem, as the NIV heading correctly says. Uh, It's described there in verse 1 as an oracle concerning the valley of vision. But you should know that this is a title that is dripping with sarcasm and irony. Because as we read this chapter, the whole point is that they have no vision at all. So let me take time to read it. An oracle concerning the valley of vision. What troubles you now that you've all gone up on the roofs, O town full of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry? Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They have been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled while the enemy was still far away. Therefore I said, turn away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. The Lord, the Lord Almighty has a day of tumult and trampling and terror in the valley of vision. A day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. Elam takes up the quiver with her charioteers and horses. Kerr uncovers the shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots and horsemen are posted at the city gates. The defenses of Judah are stripped away. And you looked in that day to the weapons in the palace of the forest. You saw that the city of David had many breaches in its defenses. You stored up water in the lower pools. You counted the buildings in Jerusalem and tore down houses to strengthen the wall. You built a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to the one who made it or have regard for the one who planned it long ago. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry, slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says. Go say to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the palace. What are you doing here? And who gave you permission to cut out a grave for yourself here, hewing your grave on the height and chiseling your resting place in the rock? Beware. The Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O you mighty men. He will roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die, and there your splendid chariots will remain. 
you, dis- you disgrace to your master's house. I will depose you from the, your office and you will be ousted from your position. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him, its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels, from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. Well, to put this in New Testament terms, what we have here are the tragic signs of a church that lacks a vision for the majesty of God and the glory of the risen Christ. And there are five things that mark a church that loses focus on God. Firstly, uh, we become blind to our true spiritual condition. So if you move that forward, Kevin, a couple of slides. No, that's right. And that's what the first eight verses of chapter 22 are about. See, Isaiah looks at Jerusalem, and he sees that it's noisy with rejoicing. Verse 1. What troubles you now that you have all gone up on the roofs, O town of commotion, O city of tumult and revelry? Uh, why was the city having lots of roof parties? Well, we don't know exactly the timing, but it could be linked to what we considered last week. Uh, for three years, Assyria, the superpower that was sweeping nations before it, had put a siege against the Philistine city of Ashdod. And do you remember poor Isaiah? Uh, he was sent out in unusual dress uh, for three years. And... Um, No doubt there was an increasing tension and fear in Jerusalem as they saw this siege come through to completion, that the city got taken and uh, destroyed. And that was a neighbor. They must have just thought, we're next, we're next. But actually, amazingly, what happened is that Assyria, having conquered this city, went back home. The army went back home. And maybe that's the cause of rejoicing here in Jerusalem. Maybe that's what the roof parties are about. But Isaiah just finds this utterly tragic. He sees this as so short-sighted. See, they're having parties while Isaiah is full of tears because they are so spiritually complacent. They had all the forms of religion. They identified themselves as God's people. But in practice, in their lives, they were just like the rest of the nations around them. And so Isaiah is weeping because he sees that because they're just like the nations around them, they're going to face the same judgment of God. And he sees a vision of the future where the city of Jerusalem 
will be lost and all its leaders flee away. So certain is this future that it's spoken of as a completed past in verse 2. These events have not happened up to Isaiah's day. But he's prophesying something that's so certain it's it's written as if it's done in the past. Look at uh, verse 2b. Your slain were not killed by the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your leaders have fled together. They've been captured without using the bow. All you who were caught were taken prisoner together, having fled away while the enemy was still far away, which is exactly what happened in the 6th century. Uh, 150, 180 years ahead of Isaiah's prophecy. Verse 4, Therefore I said, Turn away from me, let me weep bitterly. Do not try to console me over the destruction of my people. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, has a day of tumult and trampling and terror. And perhaps the better word for terror there would be the word confusion. In the valley of vision. A day of battering down walls and of crying out to the mountains. See, what Isaiah sees and predicts correctly is a siege uh, around Jerusalem uh, uh, that would actually end up conquering uh, the city. And and it did happen in the 6th century BC that uh, the king and his leaders tried to break out of the wall and make a run for it, but they got taken. The... The, the, the word terror or confusion in verse 5 is the very word that's used in Deuteronomy. It, it is used of, of what God promises to do to the, uh, the nations of Canaan. What God would do as, as they who had left Egypt would go and conquer the land. That, that God would go before them and cause confusion amongst the, 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 the nations that were there. And so that uh, Israel would be able to conquer them. But it's also the very same word that's used at the end of Deuteronomy where the Lord says, if you disobey my covenant, the curses of God will come upon you and you will be thrown into confusion and you will be thrown out of the land. And Isaiah knew his Bible. And he sees that's exactly what is going to take place for them in Jerusalem. He sees the depths of their spiritual apostasy. He sees how low their faith is and their trust in the Lord. And he knows that the judgment and destruction is inevitable. He refuses to be comforted. Can you imagine? They're all partying. Come on, you, come on, Isaiah, don't be such a, a party pooper. Rejoice with us. Have fun. Party it up. He refuses because he knows what's really going on. He sees the poverty of their spiritual state and he is weeping over God's people. And some of you know this in your own experience. Some of you have wept for your own children who have just basically headed out and are partying hard into ever-increasing lostness and judgment and fail to see the damage that they're doing to their souls. You know this weeping. I wonder, have we, have we ever wept over our spiritual complacency in our own lives? Uh, Do we weep over the danger of lukewarmness? And if the answer is no, then the the, the point is that we too might be blind and and short-sighted to the reality of the glory of God. If we don't have a big vision of God, we'll be pretty happy and comfortable with our lukewarm state. 
when the disciples got a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, it shook them deeply, didn't it? Remember uh, when Jesus stilled the storm in Mark chapter 4? With a word, he stilled the storm. What was the reaction of the disciples? They were absolutely terrified as they saw the majesty of King Jesus. They were terrified to see his glory revealed in that moment. Or think about Peter's reaction when he saw uh, the miraculous haul of fish. Uh, they'd been fishing all night. They'd got nothing. And uh, uh, this man comes along and gives them some advice. Well, just throw your net on to that side. And then there's this massive haul of fish. And what's Peter's reaction to this revelation of the glory of Christ? He, he falls on his knees and he begs Jesus. He says, go away from me. For I am a sinful man. Was that not the same response of Isaiah in seeing the glory of God in the temple? We read back in Isaiah chapter 6. He has a vision of the glory of the Lord, his train filling the temple, and he says, woe is me. I've got unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He is filled with dread and fear and is shaken to his core as he sees the glory and the majesty of God. And I wonder, have we ever... When did we last feel the awesomeness of God and consider the awesome glory of Christ? Isaiah looks to the people of God in their frivolous partying and he's unconsolable. He weeps. second mark of a church that doesn't see the glory of God is that we are self-reliant instead of God-dependent. It's not that Judah failed to notice that there was a threat, that it was living in dangerous times. It had taken lots of practical steps, hadn't it? Did you notice that as we read chapter 22, verse 8? Um, they had uh, looked at... Uh, in that day, they'd look to the weapons in the palace of the forest where they used to keep that. Uh, it was the room where they kept their weapons. They checked their weapons, verse 8. Uh, verse 9, they had looked to where the, uh, there were weaknesses in the walls and they sought to shore them up. Um, they, 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 they made sure that their water supply was taken care of. Verse 11, you built a reservoir between the two walls and this uh, this famous tunnel, Hezekiah's tunnel. You can still see it if you go to see Jerusalem today where they directed the water supply of a spring into the city walls. So they took care to protect their water supply. They strengthened the walls. But verse 11, but you did not look to the one who made it. You didn't have regard for the one who planned it long ago. It is not wrong to do practical things. It is not wrong that they looked to do things like strengthen the walls and take care of the water supply. The tragedy is that they did all of those things without once thinking about looking to God. Without ever thinking about the importance of dependence upon God. And in a crisis, in a crisis it is where we look for help that reveals what we are actually depending upon. And when the crisis came for them, they were more focused on self-reliance rather than Godward dependence. That, that is a, always a sign of a church that hasn't got a very clear view of the glory of God and the majesty of King Jesus. 
So we live in a society today where it seems as if the real power is exercised in law courts and in parliament. And in that environment, there's a real temptation to think that the kingdom of God will be something that we achieve uh, by engaging in politicking and grabbing hold of power ourselves when it is only God who can actually do the real work of bringing spiritually dead people to life. And it is only God who can really do the work of bringing revival to churches and to nations. Well, dwindling numbers in churches and denominations takes place. There's been a serious investment in the last 20 years to study what makes churches grow. And there's huge amounts of literature out there. And the tragedy of much of that church growth literature is whether it's the old seeker-sensitive form of it or whether it's the new emergent forms, uh, is that many of its principles and its practices are so pragmatic that they require no blessing from God at all. They will guarantee that you get a crowd. All you need is the right uh, mix of uh, humor, fun, friendliness, music, entertainment, and inspiration. And you can, get, you can fill out stadiums of people if you've got a nice, positive, happy, chirpy message of how you can have your best life now. You can fill the joints. And the tragedy is that it has nothing to do with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with depending upon God to act. A.C. Dixon uh, was an American Baptist preacher. He uh, took over uh, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where Spurgeon used to be a preacher at one stage. He even preached here at Charlotte Chapel. And he once said this, When we depend upon organization, we get what organization can do. When we depend upon money, we get what money can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. I spent some time this week reading some of Joseph Kemp's um, accounts of the revival that took place here at Charlotte Chapel in 1905 up to 1912. Uh, the, the chapel nearly closed at the end of the 19th century, but um, some folk called Kemp to come. And uh, after witnessing the revival in Wales in 1904, he returned, I think, with a Welshman, and they began to report what was taking place, and then the people began praying. Now, here's an excerpt describing a meeting at Charlotte Chapel. I want you to notice with me how they describe the experience of freshly becoming aware of God. Listen to this. It was, however, at a late prayer meeting held in the evening at 9.30 that the fire of God fell. There was nothing humanly speaking to account for what happened. Quite suddenly, upon one another came an overwhelming sense of the reality and awfulness of his presence. I, I guess we would use the word awesomeness today, wouldn't we? awfulness or awesomeness of his presence and of eternal things. Life, death, and eternity seemed suddenly laid bare. Prayer and weeping began and gained an intensity every moment. 
Soon separate sounds were indistinguishable. And so on the day of the laying of the foundation of the second temple, the people could not discern the noise of the shouts of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. And between 1905 and 1911, a thousand people entered into membership of the church, many through being converted during this revival. The third mark of a church without vision of the majesty of God is that it lives just like the rest of the world without hope. Look at verses 12 to 14. The Lord, the Lord Almighty called you on that day to weep and to wail, to tear out your hair and put on sackcloth. But see, there is joy and revelry. Slaughtering of cattle and killing of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, you say, for tomorrow we die. Well, that's a slogan that would sum up a lot of British culture, is it not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And, and that, that is actually the logical way to live, uh, if there is no hope. The Apostle Paul quotes this very passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and um, he, he makes this point that if there is uh, no resurrection from the dead, this is the way people will live. If, if this life is all that there is, uh, and when I die there is no God to be accountable to, just nothingness, then surely you must squeeze as much pleasure as you can out of life. Eat as much food as you can do, drink as much drink as often as you can, get as much sex as you can before you die, because that's it. When you're gone, that's it. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, that is how you live when there's no hope, when there's no future. And the tragedy here was that this is how the people of Judah were living, even though God had called on them to take sin seriously and repent. They had such a small view of the difference that God could make uh, to their fragile situation that they were just parting it up, living without hope, living without any sense of future. And without obeying God's call to repent, there is no hope of forgiveness. Look at verse 14. The Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for. What is that sin? The sin of failing to repent. Till your dying day, this sin will not be atoned for, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see how desperately we need a renewed vision? of the glorified, risen Christ. Not, not just, well, yeah, I know that. But it is such a present reality that it presses and impinges upon our thinking day by day. See, without believing in his resurrection, there's no hope beyond this life. And so we will never do anything that will risk our comfort and our ease now. If we really don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, then the church will just look like everything else in the world. We'll just be trying to live it up, maximize the pleasure, never do anything that risks harm or hurts. And it may not be the sort of hedonistic sex, drugs, and rock and roll version. It might be just a nice little middle-class version where we just have a nice comfortable life. We never put ourselves at any risk or sacrifice because the truth is we don't really believe in the resurrection of the dead the life to come. Paul says it is 
the very fact that Christ is risen and glorified, that he, um, how does he put it? Let me find out my notes. He's willing to endure, uh, he's willing to endanger his life every day. Every day, he said, I put my life in danger. Every hour. Why did Paul do that? Why did he endure all the shipwrecks and the beating and the pain and the suffering? Because he believed in the glorified risen Christ. He'd seen the glorified risen Christ. It shaped the way he lived. He was willing to suffer now. He's willing to struggle now because he knew there was a life to come. But a church that doesn't have that confidence will not live in that way. Fourthly, a church that is blind to um, the glory of God will be a church where its leaders look to their own fame instead of caring for God's people. Do you see in verses 15, uh, there's the, the, loon, the, the lens zooms from uh, the city down to one particular leader, this guy called Shebna. Shebna was supposed to be uh, a steward of the people, but instead was more focused on his own image and reputation and legacy. Verse 17 says he liked traveling around in flashy chariots. And he spent a lot of time focused on his own uh, fame. He, he planned a grave for himself worthy of a king. Uh, etched out in the tomb on the heights so that all could see it. Here's a man who should be caring for the sheep and all he's doing is caring about his legacy. Planning for his death to be a glorious thing for everyone to see. Um, I know what... If you go to London this year, you've got to go to the British Museum. You know this, don't you? Have you heard this from me? You've got to go to the British Museum. Uh, it blew me away when I walked down one of the corridors in the British Museum and I saw this. Do you know what that is? That is Shebna's tomb. They've actually got, they, they chipped out a bit from the rock and this is the Shebna inscription, the royal steward of Hezekiah. We've got, we've got this bit of the tomb that we're reading about here. You've got to love that, haven't you? But here's the sober thing. We're talking about a real man who was a real leader of God's people. And God gives him this savage indictment. He was kind of a celebrity pastor. Wanted a big name for himself. And God denounces him. Because this is what happens if you don't believe, uh, if you don't have a big vision of God and his glory, you'll start to think of yourself more highly. You'll start viewing yourself as, more, as being glorious and, and worthy of receiving glory. And you forget that you're there to serve this glorious king and serve his people. And Isaiah is sent with an uncompromising message. We're going to read in a few chapters of how Shebna and, Hil, and Eliakim go to Isaiah and chat with him. So he's to see these people. And this is what Isaiah has to see to Shebna, verse 17. Beware, the Lord is about to take firm hold of you and hurl you away, O you mighty man. He'll roll you up tightly like a ball and throw you into a large country. There you will die and there your splendid chariots will remain. You're disgraced to your master's house. I will depose you from your office and you'll be ousted from your position. And in total contrast to Shebna is Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. See, if Shebna is self-regarding, Eliakim is described as a servant of the Lord and a father of the people. If Shebna is like an unstable bouncing ball, Eliakim is like a peg 
that is stable and dependable. And while Shebna is going to see disgrace and be deposed, Eliakim will receive honor and be fixed firmly in place by the Lord. But here's the the last point of of when a church doesn't have a vision for God's glory. One of the signs is that that it uh, destroys godly leaders by leaning on them instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, have a look at verse uh, 23. Even though he said these great things about Eliakim, the Lord says, I'll drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him. Its offspring, its offshoots, all its vessels. Verse 25, in that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It'll be sheared off and will fall on the load hanging on it will be cut down. Eliakim was everything that Sheba was not. But the tragedy here is that his family and those around him so focus uh, the weight of all their expectations upon his leadership rather than the Lord that they end up crushing him, breaking him, snapping him. You see, if we're looking to leaders rather than the Lord, the the truth is that the best of leaders cannot deliver on that. Eliakim was not the promised Messiah. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can bear the load of our expectations and needs. The truth is that many pastors end up retiring early on health grounds. Finished because they're discouraged and depressed. Because a church that doesn't have a vision for the glory of God and for the greatness of King Jesus will lean all their weights and expectations on that man and he will surely fail. No doubt about it. Come back with me to what we read in our New Testament reading. In Revelation chapter 1. In chapter 2, we have a description of seven churches. And they really describe the sort of churches that we have in the world today. Uh, Some were orthodox, but had lost their love of Jesus. Some were facing persecution and bearing up well in hugely difficult times. Some were beginning to accept false teaching. Others were beginning to accept sexual immorality as a normal practice in church life. Uh, some were sleepy churches that needed to wake up, and some were complacent and lukewarm churches. And before we get to chapter 2, we see that Standing in the middle of all these churches is the risen and glorified Lord. Verse 12, I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. Then I turned, I saw the seven gold lampstands. Remember, those are the churches. And among the lampstands was, was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing 
fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And what's John's response? Verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see, what we need as God's people is to call upon him that we would have a vision of the glory and majesty of God and to see the glory of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and to know that he is the Lord of this church. He is the Lord of the nations. Uh, he is Lord in this city. We are pressed in by secular humanism. Uh, people are beginning to get persecuted for sharing something of their hope in Christ. What do we need? We need a vision of this glorious Lord. He's Lord of all. And when we see him in his glory, we will be those who will mourn over our sin and over our spiritual condition and we'll repent of it. We will depend upon him instead of self-reliance. We will live for Christ with courage and hope in this world because he is the living one who was dead but is now alive forevermore. It is wonderful the Lord puts his hand on John and says in verse 17, Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because this Lord is for him. And this Lord is the one who is the first and the last. He's the living one. He was dead and behold, he is alive forever. And he holds the keys of death and Hades. That's what you need if you're facing to be, be suffering and perhaps death for being a Christian. You need to know that the one who holds the keys of death and Hades says to you, don't be afraid. And when we see the glory of Christ as leaders, we will live for his glory and we will not promote ourselves in his place. We will instead care for his flock. And as a congregation, we will lean on this Christ rather than crush our leaders with unrealistic expectations. Let's bow